ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to uh, our Space Warfighting Studies Forum here at the Mitchell Institute. I'm Kevin Chilton, the Explorer Chair, and uh, happy to host you today. And what a great program we have uh, set up for you today, because we have three of the Space Force's Delta Commanders joining us today. Colonel Miguel Cruz, who's the Delta IV Commander. Colonel Matthew Holston is the Delta VIII Commander. And Colonel Robert Long, is the Space Launch Delta 30 Commander. And I'm excited to have them on board because the stand-up of Deltas, this is, this is brand new. And there's a lot of confusion out there about what a, a Delta command is, what their responsibilities, how this fits into the broader Space Force organization. So these gentlemen are gonna give us an opportunity to, to, to explore that a little bit today and really raise a level of understanding of their responsibilities and what their teams are doing uh, in support of our national security space operations. So uh, gentlemen, welcome. It's really great to have you here. And I thought, uh, you know, it's typical in this forum, we'd like to begin by giving our guests an opportunity to share a few of their thoughts, and then we'll fill in the, the dialogue discussions with some Q&A as, as we go through uh, the session today. So um, Colonel Cruz, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin with you, if you give us a little thumbnail about, uh, about your command at, at Delta Four. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much, uh, sir, for the opportunity, uh, John Shelton, and to you and to the Mitchell Institute uh, for this uh, for this opportunity. Can't think of a better way to spend that fr uh, a Friday afternoon, especially uh, joined by uh, my good friends from a long time, Colonel Matt Holston and uh, Rob Long. We've, we've known each other for, for quite a while. Uh, so again, Miguel Cruz, go by Mac, a commander of the Space Delta IV, the Missile Warning, Missile Tracking uh, Delta. Um, I think we have already pretty much uh, talked uh, a lot over the last uh, year or two in terms of uh, how space is important to our way of life, to our way of war, uh, to pretty much everything that we do. So let, I'm not going to dive into that. I think that this audience understands that very well. Uh, one key aspect, however, missile warning in my, my, in, in my uh, current capacity is, one, is what we consider one key aspect of how space is intrinsically connected to the defense of our nation, the defense of our allies and the protection of our deployed troops around the world. And so that's where we fit uh, the importance of not only space as a, as a, in the civilian term, but also space in the military term and how missile warning fits into that. Our job really is to provide strategic and theater missile warning and tracking. We do that for the United States. We do that for our uh, international partners. We also do that in support of combatant commanders worldwide. And we can probably talk a little bit about uh, the events a couple of years ago uh, during the Al-Assad um, attack where we had a, a very strong uh, role in there. To do that, oh, by the way, we do that for, for three main purposes. The first one is always deterrence, right? Nobody really wants a conflict that extends into space. The other one is protection of human lives and property as well to the utmost of our ability by virtue of the notifications that we provide and giving people enough time to essentially duck and cover, right? As was the case for the, on the Al-Assad um, uh, event. And then of course, if deterrence fails, uh, we also uh, want to make sure that we are postured to enable the decisive response as part of a combined or joint force. So it's not only about ourselves, it's about how we do this in combination with uh, with our uh, sister services as well as international partners. To do this, we utilize sensors in space, in the ground, and in the, in the middle. So three space sensors and three orbital regimes uh, combined are supported by six ground-based radars throughout the world, and then also supported by an array of COM relay sensors throughout the world to enable that communication and that uh, 
data transfer to occur. Of course, that doesn't happen in isolation. We have great support from the Intel community with specificity in space intelligence, as well as cyber intelligence. And then, as I just uh, mentioned, uh, a good uh, support from uh, the cyber defense team and cyber defense professionals uh, to essentially uh, form the shield to our sword, if you will, uh, in, our, in our operations. So 10 direct report units, uh, five direct support units on about 11 locations around the world. We are a total force. We have support from the uh, National Guard as well as the Reserve. And we are also a combined operations. We have Canadians, we have uh, uh, Brits, we have Australians and New Zealands in our operations uh, as well. From my perspective, I would say missile warning in conclusion is a national security imperative. I don't think there is security without missile warning, it's particularly uh, in space. And the way we see it is it is an essential element of deterrence for our nation and our allies, as well as an essential element to victory should we ever go to conflict in space. Thank you very much. I look forward to the questions. Outstanding summary. Thank you so much. It, it, it's, it's queued up a few questions I have in my mind for you. So we'll, we'll circle back to you here in a little bit. Colonel Long, we're going to move you up in the batting order here. I'm sure you're ready. See you in the on-deck circle. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. And Appreciate uh, any thoughts you want to share with us uh, at the top of the, the program here on your Delta, please. Yeah, thanks, sir. Appreciate it, General Chilton, uh, obviously for inviting us to speak today. Uh, and, and as Max said, it's good to see two old friends on, on this panel here. Uh, I, I will say I'll add that, you know, that's one of the great things about the Space Force. The thing is, you know, we've got a lot of people that have known each other for a long time and we're, we're kind of, uh, it, it helps when you're creating new organizations to have that connective tissue out there. Um, and, and you know, knowing you can phone a friend. Um, but for me personally, uh, yes, I'm out here at Space Launch Delta 30. It's a great time to be part of the launch business. Uh, we're definitely ramping up. Um, I'll talk a little bit here first about what we do out at Space Launch Delta 30. And, uh, and then I'll, like I said, as Max said, I'll kind of turn it back over. But um, we are one of two Space Launch Deltas. Um, and you'll notice the name there is different. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, and our, you know, where our, both of our missions are to provide space force and range services for DOD and industry. That's kind of fundamentally what we're about here out, out here at Vandenberg for SLD-30. Uh, we operate the Western Range and provide capabilities across the spectrum of national security, civil, uh, various private industry, uh, as well as things for missile testing, aircraft testing, ground and sea force exercises, quite the gamut that includes customers like the NRO, National Constance Office, Air Force Global Strike Command, uh, missile Defense Agency, and I could continue to list those out. So it's a pretty diverse mission set out here in terms of customers anyway that we support. Um, we're, prim we're primarily here though, we exist to launch into polar orbits and uh, we can talk about that maybe a little detail later on based on our southern location here and being right next to the Pacific Ocean. Um, that also helps us though on the Pacific being able to do long range test activities out, uh, whether that's ICBM testing, ground-based interceptor testing. Uh, there's a host of other uh, examples of that as well. Uh, but I like to always point out that, you know, we, 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 our mission is to provide world-class range services, but we're also, we kind of view ourselves as a strategic platform, um, providing world-class installation support as well. So, you know, we have 118,000 acres of land out here at Vandenberg, uh, over 11,000 folks that are here on, a, on a, uh, kind of an average, average daily basis. Um, and it's with that kind of installation commander hat on <clears throat> that, you know, we provide support to all of our mission partners here. General Burt is here on the, on the station with us as the Combined Force Space Component Command. Obviously, the CSPOC is here. Uh, we have the operational ground-based interceptors, the schoolhouses for both space and missile. We have a new Delta that just stood up that's on site now. Uh, we have other SPOC units, other mission partners. So it's a real, as I've said, it's a real dynamic and diverse mission set um, from the installation perspective. And it's really that last aspect, um, the installation support, that makes us a bit different as a space launch Delta than some of the other Deltas. 
uh, what we did here when it was when it was constructed, uh, everyone realized that the launch mission is really uh, hard to separate the infrastructure side to the actual range and launch operations, uh, the services that we provide. Um, and so in doing so, uh, they decided uh, to keep the space launch deltas uh, both sides of the house. So the gear, what we would call the garrison function and the operational function stayed underneath the space launch delta. Um, and it, it's been really great. And we can talk about that a little bit later too, but you know, I remind our team regularly when we broke down these stovepipes and we, we, we eliminated a middle level of management um, at the group level, um, it really forced us to integrate across what we would call the installation support side and the operations side. Um, so, you know, we're not just a renamed 30th Space Wing. Uh, when we eliminated those groups, it really, really focused us on, hey, I could have a CE individual that is doing ops, although they wouldn't necessarily traditionally call themselves operators. And it's, a, it's an important point, I think, overall to make. Um, so the other aspect I'll add is we are new, uh, uh, different from the standpoint of we fall now under Space Systems Command. And uh, that adds another uh, layer of newness, I'll call it, in terms of how we um, go about our daily business and under what's called the Assured Access to Space Enterprise. Um, and I can talk a lot more about that later on as well, but just, you know, it really has aligned the launch program office and the two launch operational ranges uh, and spaceports under one um, entity. And that really provides us a nice uh, uh, synergy across those. So I'll stop there, sir, and uh, happy to go into any level of detail that would, uh, would be useful. Thank you. Uh, and you brought up a great point here I'll, before we go to Colonel Halston is uh, you're in a different uh, command in, in the Space Force. So Colonel Cruz, you're under the Space Operations Command. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, sir. Out of the Space Operations Command. And your boss is out at Peterson Air Force Base. Yes, 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 sir. Uh, Lieutenant General White. Very good. Okay. And then he works directly for General Raymond. So, you know, just seeing how this chain of command flows. And then for, for you, Colonel Long, your boss is head of acquisition, right, for the Space Force? Yes, sir. I mean, he's the Space, as a Space Systems Command commander. So Lieutenant General Gutlein, Mike Gutlein is, is the commander of that. And uh, yeah, he, is, he has been tasked with bringing together the space acquisition uh, function uh, that uh, originally started kind of under the Space and Missile Systems Center and uh, has now been elevated to the field command level. Very good. And he hangs his hat just down the road in El Segundo, California, right? Yes, sir. That's correct. Okay, good. That's just, just painting this picture for the, the broader audience of, you know, who you report to and what your responsibilities. This is great. And uh, Colonel Holson, we'll see if we can pull you up next. Uh, I think you're also in the Space Operations Command uh, chain of command. Uh, you're Delta, uh, Delta 8. And uh, if, if you wouldn't mind um, telling us a little bit about uh, your responsibilities and what Delta 8 does. Hey, General Chilton, can you hear me? Loud and clear. All right, sounds great. I do appreciate the caveat that this is not going over satellite communications. Um, so apologize for some of the technical difficulties there. Um, thank you, sir, as well as the Mitchell Institute for the opportunity uh, to participate in the Space Power Forum. Uh, I think it's an incredibly important discussion, especially as uh, we're about two years old now as a Space Force and uh, stand up at the Deltas. As you alluded to, I do fall under Space Operations Command and Space Delta 8. Uh, my direct boss is Lieutenant General Whiting and then reporting from there to General Raymond. Um, so very flat organizational structure. Um, truly uh, an exciting and historic time for the Space Force and our Mission Deltas. And I'll say, you know, as this audience is aware, the Mission Deltas were really purpose-built to generate, present, and sustain space combat power uh, to protect and defend U.S. space operations and enabling our way of life and our way of war. 
Uh, within Space Delta-8, we're focused on military satellite communications and navigation warfare. Uh, we have a 24-7, 365 warfighting mission uh, to ensure U.S. space superiority. And um, specifically, Space Delta-8 is uh, headquartered out at Shriver Space Force Base. We do have backup location at Vandenberg Space Force Base out there uh, where Colonel Long is. We have about 550 active duty uh, guardians uh, across the Delta uh, that perform our warfighting mission. And uh, we're comprised of two operational squadrons, the 2nd Space Operations Squadron and the 4th Space Operations Squadron. Um, TUSOPS really provides our precision navigation and timing through the GPS system. Um, and it's not only to the joint warfighter, but also to the entire world. You know, we provide that signal as we command and control 37 GPS satellites. It literally touches over 4 billion users every day. Um, and it's important to emphasize that it's a critical capability for our nation as well. It touches every critical infrastructure. And we have a responsibility to ensure that we protect it, we defend it, and we have an assured signal um, through our navigation warfare. And I think we can speak to that a little bit later throughout the discussion. Um, we also have the Force Space Operations Squadron, and uh, that's the Space Force's largest space operations squadron. It operates our wideband and our protected satellite constellations. We have 29 satellites that we command and control um, across five different weapon systems. And, and I'll say, honestly, it, it's hard to overstate just how impactful FORSOPS is to the United States government and the warfighter. FORSOPS truly links the force across air and land, sea and space um, through satellite communications. Uh, we command and control the Defense Satellite Communication System, Wideband Global SATCOM, MILSTAR, Advanced DHF, as well as two hosted payloads, um, the Enhanced Polar System. And they connect our national decision makers and our warfighters anywhere on the globe at any time. Um, speaking to the strategic impact of the Delta, you know, if you think about it, between GPS and MILSATCOM, every element of our national power, military, informational, diplomatic, and economic, is reliant upon the space-based capabilities and signals uh, that TUSOPS and FORSOPS pr provides every single day. Um, so that's an exciting, uh, exciting responsibility that we have here. And then, sir, lastly, I'll say to the audience, um, while we currently command and control wideband and protected satellite communications, uh, we're excited here in fiscal year 22 after we get through FY22 budget resolution, we are at the forefront of transferring Army and Navy SATCOM missions over to the United States Space Force and ultimately to Space Delta-8. And so underneath the MILSATCOM umbrella, we will integrate the MILSATCOM enterprise uh, where Space Delta-8 We'll do command and control for our narrowband missions that are currently performed out at Point Magoo in California by the United States Navy. That mission and approximately 150 personnel will transfer over to Space Delta-8 um, after we get the budget resolved. And then the United States Army is currently doing wideband payload control as well as MILSATCOM global management and allocation out at Fort Carson and Peterson Space Force Base. So approximately 500 soldiers and um, civilians will transfer over to the United States Space Force, and that wideband payload control mission will come to the United States Space Force and Delta-8 here in the near future. So we're excited about that. We'll stand up three additional operational squadron equivalents. will be the 10 SOPs. We'll replace the, the NAVSOC, which is out at Point Magoo. We'll continue to keep personnel there and fly that constellation out of Point Magoo. 
53 SOPs will stand up in place of the 53rd Signal Battalion, which is currently run by the United States Army, and then we'll stand up the SATCOM Directorate at Peterson Space Force Base, which will do the global SATCOM management. So an exciting mission and an incredible opportunity as a Space Force to integrate the SATCOM enterprise under one umbrella. And uh, that'll happen sometime later this year. So um, I'll cut it off there. It's, again, it's a pleasure to participate in this important forum. Looking forward to the future discussion and thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Colonel Holston. I'm, I'm gonna start with uh, some questions for you so you keep, your, you keep unmuted there um, because I think it's significant what you just, what you just wrapped up with. Uh, you're, you're a growing organization. As, we, as you start to bring in some of these other constellations that were typically operated by the other services or at least they participated in them, the UHF. Uh, so low band, we think voice when we say UHF mostly, and then uh, SHF um, for uh, satellites and then the EHF, which uh, you've traditionally had in the past for sure. Probably a combination in the middle there. Uh, do I have that about right? Yes, sir, you do. So um, everything from UHF to EHF and everything in between will be managed and controlled by the United States Space Force and Space Delta-8. Um, with respect to MILSATCOM. Um, certainly there is a huge reliance and a dependency and um, coordination with the commercial sector as well, in particular for wideband communications that we continue to partner with Space Systems Command for that. But as far as MILSATCOM operations, all of the satellite command and control will fall under the United States Space Force uh, once we transfer those missions over. That's great, a, a good unity of command move. I think that makes good sense for sure. And you mentioned uh, the commercial side of this as well. I, my recollection is in, back when I was on active duty, there was you know some of our operations in the Middle East, we depended heavily on renting transponders from commercial SATCOM to support us in those operations for various, various parts of the operation. Do you envision that still being a critical element going forward uh, in your command? Absolutely. I think uh, we're going to continue to rely on and increase the partnership that we have with our commercial SATCOM service providers. Um, when you take a look at the amount of bandwidth, in particular in theaters and in CENTCOM, as well as Indopaycom, um, and throughout the world, we're going to need to rely on our commercial providers. We have a commercial integration cell that is currently embedded uh, with the Combined Space Operations Center out there at Vandenberg Space Force Base. We have a strong relationship with our commercial partners, and uh, we are looking to increase that collaboration and partnership as we move forward. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Colonel Cruz, if I could switch to you next. Um, I want to pull a thread on you. You used a couple descriptors about the missile warning you provide. One you said was strategic and one theater. And how you parse those is, is, can be kind of interesting, but I, I would think when you say strategic, you're talking about to inform National Command Authority with regard to uh, things like intercontinental ballistic missiles being launched, submarine launched, and, and the, the level of precision required for that versus the level of precision required for providing warning to a regional theater. I know you want to be precise in everything you do, but can you talk about maybe a little bit the difference that you, that you think about when providing those that type of missile warning and uh, uh, and how you prioritize what's important in, in these areas? Yes, sir. So thanks, thanks very much for that question. So so yes, from from a mission standpoint, we do make the differentiation very much like you just articulated: uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles (ICBMs), SLBMs, sea-launched ballistic missiles form essentially the uh, a traditional strategic threat 
uh, threat that we have been monitoring over the years ever since the, the, the Cold War, right? So that is a traditional uh, threat, if you will, and we continue to do that. Operational and really functionally, we're using very much the, the same sensors. So at the operational level or at the tactical level in the unit, there really isn't very much differentiation. You pointed out, yes, uh, theater, uh, theater missiles is more of a medium range, shorter range, a Scots type of missiles, if you will, if you recall, uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Um, and, and that is the differentiation. So um, the notification is a little bit different in terms of, as you pointed out, the strategic side goes into the National Command Authorities, the theater side goes into the Combatant Command a notification system. Uh, and so that notification is a little bit different, but the way that the system performs is actually very, very similar to each other. And once those notifications ensue, or what that indication happens, the crews react uh, immediately uh, to those notifications of, as it was in the case for uh, in the in the Atlas attack. Of course, uh, if, if there is a, a need to decide between strategic and theater, obviously, you know, that depends on what type of a, a missile, how it is characterized, how much time you have to react uh, to it. Uh, obviously, in the theater sense, there's a little bit less time to react and the strategic sense is probably a little bit less, although there is not a lot uh, in that sense. Um, so you pointed out uh, very well, but but at the at the tactical level for the operator, the reaction time and the speed in which we perform the mission and how the the uh, sensors um, uh, identify and locate and track uh, those missiles is relatively similar. Very good. Well, and you know you also talked about being able to attribute an attack, which is, is one of the key elements of deterrence. You know, if, if someone can do something and not be attributed to it, they'll do it. Uh, or they're more likely to do it, but the fact that you you know where these missiles come from, and uh, and so you can respond to either the theater commander or the national command authority at the source of the attack, they know, the fact that they know that you will know is a deterrent and important. Well, of course, this is all underpinned by a lot of intelligence that comes pre, during, and after, right? So going to the uh, attribution aspect of it, you know that that is a big piece uh, to that as well. Well, and the Al-Assad attack, I think, is is a a great story to tell. And if you could tell it quickly and in, in, in whatever manner, unclassified manner, of course, here on this forum, but uh, you guys really made a difference, your team. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I believe it was uh, 2009 and a Bravo crew from the second state warning squadron was on watch that particular day. They received the indications of warning that there were uh, missiles coming inbound to Al-Assad. Uh, they made the rapid notification uh, via phone and then coordinated uh, theater uh, command authorities to move uh, troops out of harm's way. As a result, there was zero loss of life uh, and uh, minimum uh, uh, equipment damage. That's fantastic. That's great work by your team. Uh, we, we know that, uh, I just wanted to make sure that story was told for our audience to make sure they understood the critical role your team played in getting the heads up so people could take shelter and uh, minimize casualties there. So thank you for that. Yes, kind of long, if I could, I'd like to talk a little bit, give you an opportunity to explain the significance of, uh, of your geographic location. And, you know, I, I like to say, you know, geography matters even in space. And uh, it certainly does for Colonel Cruz, where he places his radars for early warning. But your unique location on a part of California that sticks out far enough you can shoot due south and not hit uh, L.A. or San Diego is, is pretty special. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, sir. Absolutely. No. 
usually when I, I like to describe when we do it, I, you know, we always have to kind of fund, fundamentally come back to the main purpose that we exist. And it, obviously I mentioned earlier, range services and providing a range is part of it, but really we're here to make sure that we protect the public um, and we do things safely. Um, and so in doing so, if you're gonna try to launch in a polar orbit, which typically goes to the South um, from the launch site, um, you need to do that where it's not gonna overfly population areas, it's not gonna overfly other land, you don't wanna overfly heavily traveled areas. Uh, and uh, you know that's kind of your key point because you wanna make sure you do it as safely as possible and you don't risk uh, the public's safety. You can certainly reach um, other highly inclined or polar orbits from other launch sites. So you could go to Cape Canaveral and, and some do at times, but you pay a performance penalty when you do that because you have to launch to the east and then turn uh, south. Um, uh, and generally, you know, I would say that every performance penalty is less payload to orbit. So, you, you, you know, uh, companies will make a, an efficiency call on that when they do that. But ultimately, that's kind of why I always call Vandenberg kind of the strategic platform, right? We, there's a few locations in the world that offer what uh, we can provide here. Number one is location, but then just the infrastructure that's been built up over the decades um, and the range services. Um, so, you know, when we talk about that, you know, our, our, our location is vitally important um, as a strategic asset, I would say to the nation. Um, and we're not gonna be, uh, I think, without business here in the, in, in the future. Well, and to that point, you see, uh, you know, typically we see uh, because of the commercial aspect, because of the launches that go to geosynchronous, they're mostly coming out of, well, they're all coming out of, uh, for the most part, out of Cape Canaveral, that, that area, launching due east. Um, and, and so the launch frequency out of Vandenberg Space Force Base in the past has not been as high, but do you see that stepping up a little bit uh, going forward? Yes, sir, absolutely. I mean, all forecasts are, are uh, pointing to increased launch rates, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. I, as you mentioned, the, the degree might be slightly different, um, but you know, United Launch Alliance and SpaceX aren't slowing down anytime uh, in the future. Uh, we have numerous new customers and interest coming out here. Companies like Strata Launch, Relativity, ABL, I, can, I could keep going, Astra is another one. Um, they're all trying to figure out what the best way to leverage our, our location, our set of services uh, for both space launch. And, and then I should also mention our test activities that come out of here. So the ground-based strategic deterrent test program will eventually, it's a development program will come out here and they, they're going to uh, they're going to keep us busy for the foreseeable future. We're not going to slow down, at least in the near term, on Minuteman testing. So for ICBM testing there. MDA will continue and they've got their new program coming online, uh, development program too. Um, so we, we don't see any uh, let up in the future in terms of um, business. Um, and also that's why we, we really wanna be just what we would call a range of choice, especially for polar orbits and, and test activities, right? Because we, as I mentioned, we, we do kind of provide a unique uh, set of capabilities and uh, a location obviously to create opportunity for our customers. And that's really what we wanna do. We're trying to really transform ourselves um, into this national spaceport model. We're still working through what that model looks like and what it really is. We're a customer service provider and we wanna provide you know, a, a host of tailorable services that facilitate safe, flexible, repeatable, simultaneous operations so that we can really be the most efficient way um, as, as much as we can when we talk about our range operations. But what do you need to grow at this? I mean, what you just detailed, you know, between missile defense, new ICBM coming on board, having to keep the other one still proven that it can work along the way, not only DOD polar orbit, but now civilian interest, commercial interest in it. Um, it's quite a ramp up. Are, are, is there, what do you need to, to meet that? Are you well positioned right now to accommodate all this growth? 
obviously the good thing about Vandenberg uh, is we have plenty of land area. So that's one thing that we, we, we are not short of, um, but we continue to see, you know, the demand signal, as you mentioned, uh, be critical. So really when we talk about it, we're really looking at what the range of the future um, looks like. And we actually, you know, talk a lot about the range of the future. Um, and it's really what, what core set of services um, allow users to either self-provision them, you know, what they need to, or come to us and provide capabilities to meet unique demands. And I think that's the one thing that we're really working hard on right now is we know kind of some, some basics about what the range of the future looks like in terms of those core services. Uh, and, but we're really, we just had a discussion with industry last week, trying to tease out, you know, what is a value that the ranges can provide in terms of national spaceports um, so that we can provide our launch service providers and our, our nation as a uh, kind of as a strategic service uh, about, you know, if we could provide, if we could provision, for example, networks or processing capabilities or storage, network storage, would that be of interest? And, and, and if that's of interest, is there, is there a model by which we would either figure out uh, there's some level of service or fee associated with that? Um, so we're really, we're really starting to, I think, uh, and that's one of the things with uh, coming into Space Systems Command is allow us to focus on that together. Um, but I would be remiss in not in, in, in highlighting that none of this really happens without the automated flight safety system. So AFSS, you may, not, you may have heard that before. That's really, that's really the key piece in transforming what we do because it decouples um, uh, what used to be a large set of infrastructure for tra traditional flight safety. So you can think your command destruct. So if we have to uh, an errant space launch vehicle or an errant missile will have to destroy it if it's going towards populated areas. When you, when you take that infrastructure and you shrink it down and put it on the rocket itself uh, with the right software in place, um, you really can then decouple a lot of those and be much more efficient. So, and we proved it out here recently. Um, there's a lot of potential here. We were able to actually launch uh, between uh, an MDA uh, test uh, 34 hours later, just over 34 hours and 25 minutes later, uh, we were supporting a commercial uh, Starlink uh, SpaceX launch. And that doesn't happen if, if SpaceX isn't using AFSS because the, the ability to turn the range at this point in time is still not there. We'll get there eventually. Um, but so in terms of, we're really trying to figure out what that, what that model looks like. We loved, uh, we had some great feedback from industry and uh, we welcome more really as, as we go forward. Great, so I imagine your vision is one day you could do a missile defense test in the morning about lunchtime you could launch an ICBM and before the sun goes down pop off a, a DOD and a civilian rocket uh, all in one day uh, and right and that's, that's exactly the kind of capability you're talking about I think yes sir yeah we're talking you know, when we get to a service model we just have to define what's our baseline level of services and, and then maybe there's a customer that's going to willing to pay for more flexibility for example or they might want more robust something else and so that's what we're really trying to work through so we can be uh, you know, we really drive to, we, we, we're looking at a bunch of, there's airport models out there, there's seaport models, there's transit authorities. So we're looking at across the entire spectrum of, uh, of, of analogous systems and organizations that will help inform what makes the most sense um, so that we're really that range of choice. Terrific, thanks. Colonel Olson, if I could jump back to you now, there's, you know, finally, uh, over the last several years, uh, it seems like finally for me because I'm so old, but we're able to actually talk about uh, the space domain as we should and need to talk about it as a, actually a contested domain, a domain where uh, we've seen people uh, demonstrate that they're willing to conduct combat operations in that domain. And so we have to start treating it like air, land, and sea domains and uh, first deter conflict there. And if that fails, make sure we're in a position to dominate. Um, one, you, you articulated well and, and uh, our dependency on uh, the GPS constellation. 
for all elements of warfighting in all domains. Um, you talk a little bit about what we refer we hear referred to as nav war, and uh, and how your your team is preparing for eventualities in the space domain with regard to that mission set uh, with GPS. No, absolutely. I think. Um... You know, as we take a look at the space domain and the fact that it is, uh, it truly is a contested domain uh, and the GPS signal, the, the reliance that we have on it as a nation for our critical infrastructure, as well as war fighting across all of our domains, um, we have to think differently as we go forward about protecting that signal. Um, so when you think about the GPS signal, I think sometimes the fact that it is so ubiquitous and that everybody uses this on a daily basis, they, they take it for granted and assume that that GPS signal is going to be there, that it's going to be accurate, it can be trusted, and that it's going to be precise. But what we realized from the first Gulf War and only increasingly since then is our adversaries are watching and they recognize that our PNT signal is a game changer for warfighting operations, as well as enabling all of the combat operations through all phases and uh, mission support activity. And so we recognize that our adversaries see this as a strategic and competitive advantage. Um, for the United States and our warfighting capability. And so we have to be deliberate about taking actions offensively and defensively uh, to make sure that we have a trusted PNT signal. Navigation warfare really from a definition standpoint are deliberate offensive and defensive actions that we take to assure that we can deliver that trusted PNT signal. And it's gonna reach our allies, our coalition partners and our US uh, and joint warfighters. And on the other side of that coin, that we deny that capability to our adversaries. And that's really what navigation warfare is all about. It's taking that PNT signal and making sure that it's trusted and assured. And uh, we work in concert with the Joint Navigation Warfare Center that's down at Kirtland uh, and the team there to make sure that we are looking offensively and defensively on how we protect and uh, deliver that signal to our warfighters. You know, just some examples of the things that we're doing just within the scope of the Second Space Operations Squadron um, to get after nav war actions, um, we have the ability to strengthen the GPS signal over theaters of interest and uh, where we have warfighters um, that are conducting current operations. And so we have the ability to, to uh, flex the power there and to provide a higher signal strength from an offensive standpoint. Um, we have the ability to help mitigate adversarial jamming. Um, we provide thousands of products. We're in, we're in discussions and conversations with each of the combatant commands every single day, talking about what operations are they conducting. We provide dilution and precision charts that basically tell you throughout the next 24 hours uh, what are you expecting as far as precision of that GPS signal based on the geometry of the satellites that are going overhead and the strength of the signal? And when is the best time to strike where, where we're going to be able to maximize efficiency and lethality? Um, so we provide um, thousands of products um, to the warfighters and to the combatant commands. And then we are also in concert with uh, our civilian users. We recognize that uh, the PNT signal is an enabler for our critical infrastructure, whether we're talking transportation, uh, aviation, space-based capabilities, finance, banking, telecommunications, oil and gas, all of those things enable our ability to, uh, to project combat power. And so we work with the FAA and DOT, um, the Navigation Center of Excellence on a daily basis to say, how are we protecting this signal to assure uh, that it is precise and, that's tr and it's trusted? Um, for our users? And then how do we deny that to the adversary? Um, not as much in the scope of the Second Space Operations Squadron, but as we look at this holistically as a whole of government, uh, we have to deny PNT um, services to the adversary when we talk about the contested domain. 
So in concert with cyber, the electromagnetic spectrum, um, as well as jamming capabilities and alternate PNT means, uh, what are ways that we can deny the adversary the same capability that we use for advantaging combat? And so those are some of the things that we're doing from a, from a Delta A perspective, from a navigation warfare perspective. And I think the bottom line is, you know, trusted and assured PNT, it, it provides a significant competitive advantage for the United States and our ally and coalition partners. And uh, it's an indispensable part of our critical infrastructure and we have to work jointly on a daily basis um, through navigation warfare to make sure that we maintain PNT superiority. Great, thank you for that. Uh, Cause we are so dependent on that capability, aren't we? Yes, sir. Colonel Cruz, can I shift back to you? I wanna put a thread, pull a thread on, a, on a, some of these new threats we're seeing. Uh, emanate from both China and Russia, um, boost glide vehicles, uh, long range high speed cruise missiles, um, fractional orbital bombardment systems, which the Chinese recently demonstrated a capability, uh, or, or I should say tested that capability, which by the way, I think personally, I think is in violation of the space treaty. And we ought to remind them of that. Uh, but most of our Cold War, or most of our assets that we have for providing strategic warning, warning to the homeland, not so much talking about theater warning now, we're oriented toward the North because the threat was from the former Soviet Union, uh, remains so today from Russia, uh, ballistic missile threats that would come over the pole, the North Pole, not the South Pole. And uh, our systems, uh, Sibers satellites, DSP satellites could provide the early warning of those launches. And then those radars that you mentioned, this, that are six ground-based radars, uh, could eventually pick them up and track them. Um, but perhaps that infrastructure is not adequate for the threats that we see being developed now. So I wonder if you could comment on that and uh, maybe uh, through the lens of what you think uh, as we go to the future here, as we, we look at, at your mission set, what, what do we need to, uh, to provide that same type of early warning that, that you do so well today for National Command Authority. Yes, sir, well, thank you very much. So you're absolutely correct. Um, a lot of the uh, weapon systems and the sensors that we have under uh, our purview right now were developed from a different era, from, from an era when we didn't have uh, spaces of war finding domain. It wasn't as contested and certainly wasn't as aggressive as we have uh, seen it. I will point out, however, that the traditional threat is not going anywhere. In fact, I was just reading uh, yesterday, there was a quote from a, um, uh, a, a Russian strategic forces uh, commander who was articulating how Russia is intending to conduct at least 10 ICBM or intercontinental ballistic missiles, missile tests in year 2022. So that threat continues uh, and our sensors continue to be just as liable and just as good to be able to pursue that. Uh, we have done the job so well on our sensors, however, that we have been able to use them and far outlast their, their design life. And so that is a good thing uh, for us. It kind of talks to the, uh, to the uh, technical expertise of our, of our folks, but you are absolutely right. There's newer uh, capabilities out there, just like the ones that, that you mentioned. And I think us as, a, as an enterprise lawyer, we're approaching that with a three-pronged approach, if you will. The first one I think is the technological capability development uh, of sorts. You know, so right now we have the entire acquisitions apparatus in the United States from uh, Space Development Agency to the Missile Defense Agency, the United States uh, Space Force, the Air Force as well, all getting after getting us a network sensor of uh, capabilities that will be able to track 
those threats that you mentioned for the entirety of the flight. So, so we're already pushing in that, uh, in that direction. Uh, what we have right now uh, works, but I think, I think it's necessary that we move beyond what we have right now if for no other reason that at some point the sensors are going to, and there, there are Cold War era sensors, so we need to move uh, to that. I think in the future, the orbital regime will become, of course, more uh, pr prevalent because it's a much easier picture from, this, from space to ground to be able to detect and track those missiles from the beginning to the end. Um, but the ground-based radars will continue to fulfill a very important mission. Um, and, and oh, by the way, missile warning being their primary uh, mission, but they also have a substantial impact in the space domain awareness mission as well. There's a lot of satellite tracking and object tracking that ensues and happens at the ground-based radars, not necessarily associated with missile warning. So, so they are going to continue to be workhorses, if you will, uh, for us. So technological and capability development being one of them. The second one, I think, is organized, organizational approach. The entire reason why we created the United States Space Command, United States Space Force, and how we organized as Deltas was predicated on the fact that we were operating in a war fighting domain. That's why the Deltas were created. And that's why the structure of the Deltas was so much flatter so that we can move faster, more agile, uh, quicker. Um, and, and I think uh, you mentioned at the beginning, sir, uh, we're still getting a lot of questions from folks of what a Delta really is. And the way that I like to explain it is this. Think about an Air Force wing. Think about an Army brigade. Think about a Marine regiment. Uh, is, is the ability to put, to put the entire concentrated uh, mission area enterprise under the purview of a single commander, therefore giving you unity of command and unity of effort. And so that's really what the intent behind that was. So organizational approach. Uh, and the third one in my mind is also talent management and development. As you very well know, for the longest time, space operators have been seen or considered themselves more of a supporting role to a fight. And General Dickinson has said this many a times. He's not only a supporting commander, he's also a supported commander. And so to grow that warrior ethos, that warrior mentality, that war fighting spirit, if you will, in our operators is going to be very, very uh, important. Um, that, that, that kind of approach uh, to uh, planning and thinking and debriefing and speaking that was somewhat reserved to say weapons school graduates is now supposed to permeate throughout the entire force to, so that every operator is a warfighter. And so that, uh, that's what I was saying is, is, there, is our approach, uh, the enterprise approach to this technological capability development, organizational uh, approach, as well as talent management and development. Terrific. Great. Thanks for you know, giving us that analogy with brigade, regiment, wing. Uh, I think that'll help our listeners see where you guys and your commands fit into the broader structure here in your mission sets. And also for bringing up the fact that your radars not only provide missile warning, but they're critical to space domain awareness, which is something that U.S. Space Command needs more and more of. And so that they're a backbone there for sure. I'm sure there's other technologies we need to support that and field as well, but uh, that dual use function is is really important. And quite frankly, sir, I, we always talk about missile warning, but in reality, it's missile warning and tracking. So it's not only about the detection of the boost phase or the initial notification, it's also the mid-course intercept data that is transferred to the Army batteries that will respond and take those missiles out. And so and, and it's, it's more than just ringing the bell. It's right. actually... I like to tell the story to my, to my folks. We are very much the spotter to the sniper. 
And the spotter is very much a warfighter, just like the sniper is. Just because he or she doesn't pull the trigger doesn't mean he's not a warfighter. So that's the kind of attitude and impetus that we're trying to instill in our, in our operators. Terrific. Thank you for that. Well, I think we've reached the point where our audience, and by the way, we have over 120 participants today. So uh, your words are getting out and open, helping to uh, lift up the understanding of your mission sets uh, around, uh, around the country here. Uh, we'll switch to Q&A from the audience. And uh, Lucas is going to help us out here by uh, uh, acting as a filter for the questions that come in, not to filter any tough ones out, but just to make sure uh, you're trying to get the ones that spread across the, the three deltas here. So Lucas, over to you. Thank you, sir. Uh, I think we'll go first to uh, Sandra Irwin. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for taking my question. Um, this is a question for any of the colonels that would like to comment on this, uh, but I'm curious uh, if you can reflect on what has changed um, in your work since you've been in the Space Force. I mean, you were doing launch, you were doing PNT, you were doing missile warning when you were in the Air Force and you all grew up in the Air Force. So how would you describe what's changed and maybe some of the cultural uh, issues that you've encountered since you transitioned to the Space Force? Thank you. My name is Erwin. How are you, Colonel Cruz? Here, I'll offer two things. The first one, I think, the organizational change, uh, by virtue of being a little bit flatter, I think there's a much faster way to get to decision making, and we experience this a lot when we're trying to build the Delta and, and grow the Delta from its inception. The decision to uh, organize and how we were going to organize the type of uh, units that we were going to uh, uh, to need within the Delta. That decision was much, much, much faster uh, than had we had to go through several echelons of decision making. Uh, the second one that I, that, that I would uh, point out is probably cultural, more of an identity thing. I think, uh, and it goes back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, um, the fact that a space operator now sees himself and herself not only as having it, uh, his or her own service, but the fact that they are now called upon to be warfighters not solely, not merely uh, space operators providing a service, but actually warfighters there um, put together to defend the nation against a strategic attack or theater missile attack, as is in, in my case. So the cultural aspect and the organizational aspect and the decision-making aspect of that, to me, are the ones that, that come to mind most readily. Thank you very hey, much. Hey, Sandra, this is uh, Colonel Holson with Delta 8. I'd like to piggyback on that a little bit as well. You know, kind of from my perspective, certainly organizational change, but um, I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, I, I wore the Air Force name tape for 20 years and transferred over to the Space Force. The biggest shift that I have seen is, um, is a focus on the threat. Um, I can tell you, we have, uh, we have made deliberate decisions to change our operation support squadrons to uh, combat training squadrons and focus not just on what we do on a day-to-day -day basis um, from a satellite command and control and allocation of signal, um, but focus on what does it truly mean to do navigation warfare, to protect and defend that PNT signal and to assure uh, we've got a trusted PNT signal. And so we have beefed up our advanced training. We are intelligence-led cybersecure, and you'll hear that from Space Operations Command from every commander um, at all echelons of command. We start off, what is the threat that we're facing today and what is the threat that's going to be emerging in this contested environment and getting that warfighting ethos that Max talked about to every single guardian that is on our 
floor recognizing that um, space combat power is a critical enabler for our nation and our adversaries are trying to take that away. And so the integration between our in intel professionals, our cyber professionals, our space operators, our acquirers and engineers has really has really grown and um, increased the collaboration and integration that we have. But we are we are clear eyed on the threat that we're faced with in the space domain and focusing all of our training um, and our repetition to get after that high end fight. And I think you also see that on the resourcing side as we take a look at what weapon systems are we going to be going after the upgrades that we have to do to make sure that we as a service are going to be able to present the capabilities to fight in that contested domain. Thank you so much. Colonel Long? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. Uh, and I think I can't, not, uh, I'm not gonna ignore what the what Mac and Matt said, because it's exactly the truth. And, and, and but I'll, I'll add a different flavor coming from a different field command now. Um, obviously we, we transitioned over and, um, and the threat's the most important thing. And I would say we're all mission focused. Um, how that manifests itself kind of on our space systems command um, is a bit, uh, I'll say, different uh, given the acquisitions nature of that. But what we what we've seen is when we created the uh, assured access to space enterprise or the organization by combining the the launch uh, program office and the two ranges under one uh, a single general officer, that forced us to really codify things that we had been working on for many years. And we had been building these partnerships, uh, but 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 driving that into one organization, and we're we're already seeing benefits um, in a mission focused way, so that we were providing that the entire spectrum of services from launch uh, procurement all the way through uh, on into orbit and in doing so so that's that's kind of the at the fundamental strategic level when we talk about the field command change but then that trickles down and, and I, I want to make sure I'd, uh, I'd add one other thing that's somewhat unique to us is we can't do our job without the Air Force and the airmen that are that are sitting here at Vandenberg and, and, and elsewhere across uh, Space Force bases. Um, it's probably a bit more personal to me just because um, you know, I'll have people, Air Force uh, airmen sitting uh, ready to launch something or in support of launching, and they are absolutely critical. I mentioned the uh, our quick turnaround recently, and uh, sometimes one of the limit facts is, is, for example, fire support, right? We're a high fire season at the time, and, uh, you know, we, we don't want to take too much risk and potentially when you have a big rocket taking off and a lot of flames around a really dry area. Um, but our, our, um, our wildland fire crews and our fire department is absolutely critical to making sure we're successful in our mission. And so, um, you know, all of those layers that we are starting to pull back and, and, and uh, remove from our organizations are allowing us to really drill down quickly and, and, and get into that lean and agile um, uh, posture that allows us to do things like launching within 34 hours. Over. Thank you. Okay, our next question is for uh, Colonel Cruz. Uh, can you discuss how you exercise to ensure your team is always ready for the real event? Is there a need for more or better training capabilities? Yeah, there can, there can never be too little training or too few train, too little training. We, we have, we train every day. In fact, every time um, an operator is already cert is certified, there is a process for recurring training on a monthly basis. So that is happening. Every time we see indications of, uh, of uh, adversary, different ways of doing business. Uh, when, the, when Russia launched the uh, ASAT, when China has launched the hypersonic, uh, we always take those opportunities as advanced training to inculcate that uh, into our, into our uh, uh, crews. We also do a lot of um, uh, theater level uh, exercise integration, not only uh, the training for ourselves, but also how we can bring space capabilities in support of uh, combatant commanders worldwide, and then we'll do more space-specific 
training, for example, space flag that allows us to understand how we integrate together within the, the deltas. There is a symbiosis, if you will. There's an intricate relationship between what we do in missile warning and say Delta two for space domain awareness or Delta three for electronic warfare or Delta nine for orbital warfare. And so all those relationships are built through training, exercise, continuous uh, knowledge uh, and education. Great. Uh, the next question is for uh, Colonel Long. Uh, do you see the commercial model financing the infrastructure for DOD launches? I, I, I think that's exactly the question we're struggling with right now. And, and what we've really been working with industry on is, is getting back to fundamentally, what is the core set of services that we need to be able to provide as a range and as a spaceport um, so that we can be postured most effectively, almost uh, to service a wide range of customers, because every customer is going to be a bit different. Our test community is going to be a bit different than our commercial space launches. Um, and we're just really trying right now, especially when we talk range of the future, trying to dial in what are those core set of services um, that we want to provide that, that are, are part of a, a DOD infrastructure um, here at, at each uh, launch base. And then from there, uh, trying to understand um, what else on that menu of services do you need or what, and, and how would we come up with the uh, either the service or fee-based approach or is there something else that we can do in kind um, so we're just now tackling that, um, and, and honestly, we welcome any thoughts on that from, from industry, um, from all the smart people out there. Uh, so we're really, uh, it's, it's an exciting time to be kind of tackling, you know, how do we transform our model into a national spaceport that's effective uh, for all customers. Uh, Colonel Holston, you mentioned owning all signals in UHF. Does that mean that the Space Force will be taking over AFRC and SARSAT ELT monitoring? Hi, this is Colonel Holston. Great question. No, we will not be taking over, um, or when you say the RSSDs and Army Strat, was that the question? Uh, specifically, Uh, AFRC and SARSAT ELT monitoring. Okay, hey, maybe I'll address it a different way as we talk UHF. Um, we will be picking up uh, command and control as well as payload allocation for uh, the ultra high frequency uh, follow on system or UFO fleet sat, uh, the mobile user objective system or MUOS as well as the interim polar system. So those are the current narrowband um, systems that uh, the NAVSOC currently flies and operates out of Point Magoo. And those are the specific systems. There's 11 uh, operational satellites across UFO fleet sat and MUOS, and then two hosted payloads, the interim polar system uh, that we will be taking over from the Navy. And those, that's pretty much the scope of what uh, we'll be transferring to the Space Force from a narrowband position. Great, and then I, just a question for anyone who wants to take it up. What do you see as the biggest challenge with integration of coalition partners within Space Force? I think one of the things, this is uh, Colonel Cruz, one of the things that I will offer that will always uh, work towards is the interoperability of our systems. The other one will be just how well we can integrate and plan and execute together. The United States doesn't go to conflict uh, by itself. It always does it as part of the Jones Forge. It always does it as part of the coalition. And so that is an enduring uh, thing that we have noticed over the years. And the same thing will happen uh, in space. We are very fortunate, however, that the preponderance of our operations in space uh, have benefited from 
our international partners, from the command and control piece to the execution and assessment from the intelligence piece and so on. And so as long as we remain uh, doing that, and as long as we continue to plan, train, execute, exercise together, we just get better, better at it. Um, now I say that uh, also realizing that we are very good at what we do and, and our partners uh, that do this with us day in and day out are very good at it as well. So there's always room for improvement, but we're already the best in the world. Yeah, great comments there from Matt, Colonel Holton from Delta 8 and um, continue to drive interoperability and integration with, uh, with our um, with our partners is absolutely what we're trying to do. Certainly one of the obstacles to that, um, to, the, to the heart of the question is certainly classification levels. So anything that we can do to continue to uh, be able to share information so that we can get the reps in with our international partners, uh, be able to share that information and actually exercise together. Um, security classifications are one of the things that we continue to work on and we recognize are one of the, um, the obstacles to that. But uh, to Max's point, uh, our international partners are absolutely critical to our success and we're doing everything that we can to increase integration going forward. Terrific. Well, I think we're just about out of time here, Lucas, on the q and I'm going to reserve the host's right to make a few final comments here. I, I love uh, what I'm hearing from all three of you gentlemen about uh, this warfighting ethos that, uh, you know, you, you really were just allowed to start talking about a few years ago and how you're focused on that and developing it. Um, Colonel Cruz, um, uh, I think you, you've articulated it well, and, and, and Colonel Holson both, you know, whether it's NAV war or um, the importance of what missile warning does to, as you say, the sniper he can't do his job without you. Um, the handoffs to missile defense, whether they be theater or strategic, are, are, are really important. And, um, and Colonel Long, but I'm going to I'm going to throw one at you, maybe a curveball, but it's certainly, you know, and it's uh, it's not fair to have an answer. I don't expect an answer, but do you, it's one of, do you anticipate this? Because, you know, we always look at the homeland as being just this safe, secure area, you know, protected by two great oceans. We only have two major launch sites and they're fixed and they're on the coast, you know, in Florida and, and your operation there at Vandenberg Space Force Base. And one might anticipate in a conflict with another major power that uh, in a space fight in particular, we're looking to reconstitute or bolster our, our capability that those installations could actually come under threat of attack. And, and so is, is, are, are we beginning to think about um, how we would sustain our assured access to space in time of conflict? Yeah, absolutely. I would say two things. First of all, uh, uh, the threat has not been lost on us no, in, in, uh, in the launch business any more so than anywhere else in the Space Force. Um, and we recognize that, especially, you know, it's a, our geography is a double-edged sword, right? We need to be on the coast and then obviously opens us up to uh, some pretty easy uh, access from the sea anyway. Um, so we're right. We're, we're, we uh, recognize that and we've taken some steps uh, to make sure that we're secure on a couple different fronts. Um, and I'd add on to that, you know, we, we've started the discussion about what the, what's the national strategic infrastructure when we talk about spaceports. Um, so you have two spaceports, uh, our DOD spaceports effectively on the East Coast and the West Coast, but there are other launch place uh, ranges that uh, we could launch from. So we could go to, there's, there's Virginia, uh, there's Alaska, there's a host of others that are, are continuing to grow and develop. Um, so we have to probably, we have to take a holistic approach 
um, to understand what makes the most sense. You know, there, you're going to have some core capabilities probably at East and West Coast um, at the two uh, Space Force bases, but ultimately we definitely have to, you know, if you're talking resiliency, you want to have a bunch of different options that you could potentially go to um, to include, you know, an airborne option or uh, there's companies like ABL and some of these that are looking for some roll-on, roll-off. They can they can do it on a pretty minimal infrastructure site. So, yeah, there's a lot a lot of effort. I would say getting just after that point, and uh, I'm looking forward to see what that what that where that grows in the coming years. Terrific. Well, I think we've run out of time, gentlemen. I want to thank you uh, for your service to our country, uh, and uh, please uh, we salute your commands. And, and thank you for uh, taking time out today to help and uh, maybe enlighten folks who are trying to learn and understand better what your missions are and how, we're, how Space Force is structured through the Delta organization construct. I also wanna thank our audience. I mean, if uh, we didn't have over 120 people joining us today, dialing in, what's the point of doing it? And so uh, we've got a great audience here and uh, really appreciate your participation, your interest and your questions. This will be our last forum for 2021. And I assure you, we've got some good uh, forums. We're teeing up for 2022. It's gonna be an exciting year, just as it's an exciting time period in our nation's space business and our taking on of these new mission sets in the Space Force of treating the space domain, just like every other domain as a potential warfighting domain and posturing ourselves in such a way that we don't ever have to fight there because no one wants to take us on because they see what we can and will do in that domain. So on behalf of the Mitchell Institute for Space Power Advantage Research Center, the men and women that work here at the Mitchell Institute, we wanna wish everybody happy holidays and look forward to seeing you in 2022. Thank you. <laughs>